The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association takes this time to thank our 2023 corporate sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, BioMarin, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, and Embrya. And thank you to our 2023 annual patient meeting sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, BioMarin, Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, Rocket Pharmaceuticals, and Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, with additional funding provided by the J.T. Babbitt Foundation. It is 11.20 a.m. on August 11th, 2023. We start our podcast off here at the HCMA with date and time because science changes pretty quickly. And if you're listening to this at a later date and something sounds out of date, that is completely possible. Welcome to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association and now broadcasting live across multiple social media streams, typically each Friday morning, sometime around 11. Um, and now we are here at about 11.20 today. We have a slight change of lineup for today's podcast. The topic of the month for August is the newly diagnosed or what happens when you've been diagnosed for a while and you have a change in symptoms. And uh, Dr. Martin Marin was supposed to be with us today. Unfortunately, he was detained. So um, as we do so well here at the HCMA, we pivoted. And I have two wonderful examples of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who have had journeys over the years with HCM. Some of them are newly diagnosed, some of them have been here a while. And I thought we would turn this into a bit of a conversation about what it's like to be newly diagnosed and what it's like to face that, okay, wait, something's changed moment. So we're gonna be speaking with Ross Hadley, who is, uh, I'm gonna ask them in a minute to give us the 30 second My HCM Journey update before we start so everybody understands where we're coming from. And Joey Graham, who is going to do the same in, in just a moment. So as you see what I've done there is I've given some thought and pause and give them a moment to collect themselves before I say, Welcome, Ross, to Tales from the Heart, a podcast, which typically you're on the back end of production, not on the front end of conversation as a staff member here at the HCMA and a member of the community. So, Ross, tell the community about yourself. I'm a, I'm a 51-year-old, non-obstructed HCMA member. I came through my diagnosis pathway via AFib. So mine was a little bit different. I was at a community hospital and had been experiencing, uh, well, I'll say it here, chest pains. And uh, I just don't say the word pain in community hospitals or they never let you go. Chest tightness, dizziness, some fatigue, kind of the, the traditional things. But I was told it was stress and whatnot and uh, that I needed to lose weight and kind of the story that you hear, you know, the, di the, the diagnosis delay. And that took about a decade. And... Um, a decade. A decade of a decade of not finding out that I had AFib, really, even. And I got to a point where I was feeling badly enough that I bought a large life insurance policy because I thought I was gonna die. And when the when they did the physical for my life insurance, they discovered a, a wave abnormality, not even AFib. So they were like, oh, you you need to go get checked out. Issued my insurance uh, at a rating, and then I was referred to Mayo Clinic. And that triggered a transesophageal echo for my AFib because they were getting ready to do an ablation. And when they did the TEE, they discovered that I had apical HCM. And so literally, as I was being wheeled into surgery, they said, oh, by the way, Mr. Hadley, we discovered you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. <laughs> I, can we go ahead with the procedure? Yeah, can we go ahead with the procedure? And I was literally at the door of the of the surgery surgery room. Wheeled me in, and I got to meet the clinic after I healed. So my journey was a little uh, uh, circular, and uh, 
now I've got an ICD and I always tell people that working with the HCMA close to my heart. <laughs> so that's mine. That's mine in a nutshell. Okay. So we're going to unpack that a little bit more in a moment. Joey, your story is a little bit more current day. Yep. So tell us a little bit about how this happened. Mine started in uh, March of 2022, and it started with chest pains. And a doctor came that was a neighbor because I didn't want to go to the ER because I thought, you know, I got to take an ambulance ride. Do all, my dogs are going to get all crazy <laughs> when the people get here to get me. And she's like, my neighbor said, you have to go like you're you have to go get checked out. You've got all your, you know, you know, you've got the pain, you're sweaty, your, your heart's racing. So I went expecting to just go to the ER, have them tell me exactly what they told Ross and uh, say, that's anxiety because that's exactly what they had told my mom for 50 years of it's anxiety and your nerves and you're overweight and all of these things that they totally dismissed what she was telling them out of hand and never truly listened to her. That is what I was expecting. And they came back, they saw something on my EKG that made them think, yeah, there's something going on. So they decided to do an echogram and then some things started with the MRI and it slowly unfolded that I have HCM. Mine is obstructed and I have been going back and forth to a center of excellence in Cleveland at Cleveland Clinic. I have a great doctor there, Dr. Taimei, and I'm getting ready for a myectomy in less than two weeks. And I'll head to Cleveland on the 21st and be there for a couple of weeks. Okay, so let's help those who are new or don't know our community well. This newly diagnosed phase. For some diseases, you know, you're, you're given a diagnosis, you're given a treatment pathway, you get on it. It's, a, it's kind of a short ramp up. For us, it, it's, it's a multifaceted ramp up. We've just found out that a kind of important part of our body, you know, our heart, is not normal. There is no cure per se at this time. There is the genetic implications up and down the biologic family tree. And there is the diversity of pathways of treatment that are tossed on you all at once. Yeah. And it's like there's this jumbled knot of, of string and you have to pull each one out individually, address it, think about it, process it, and then move on to the next part of the process. That would be the nice, clean way to do it, but it very rarely happens in these in these columns. We're crossing over and we're thinking about, I have these symptoms, what if this happens and what if that, and what should I do? And oh my God, my kids, and it, it jumbles. Does that sound like your experience? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the cliche, I, almost threw up in my mouth a little bit when I got that news. I, I felt that kind of just the nausea and the the overwhelming wave of I just have no I have just lost my basis in in what I know. And losing control and not having any knowledge is really hard. And it it you know it creates fear and because you think about your mortality and then, as you said, your family and the implications of everything and being a being a breadwinner and health insurance and uh, and just mortality in general. But uh, when I was when I was doing my initial, hey, you have this. These are the results which we would now talk about as shared decision making. I wasn't making any decisions. I was just trying to listen right. and not doing a good job because my brain was just so busy. So I was very happy to have my wife in the room with me to listen. And she noticed a poster on the wall and the poster on the wall was a picture of 
hearts with HCM. And it turned out it was an HCMA poster on the wall. And she took a picture of it. And when we got home, I looked at the website and find, found out about the meeting that you all were having in Boston. And I flew out to go to the meeting and I got the book about everything you need to know about HCM by Lisa and Dr. Marin and everybody. And for me to have a tangible physical thing, because I'm a researcher, like I started Google doctoring right away and it was absolutely the worst thing that I could have done. So to, to have, to find the resource, uh, I didn't really spend a lot of time on the website initially. I didn't, uh, didn't make that. Yeah. But now I spend a lot of time on the website and, uh, but the book really helped me and it helped me do a better job of communicating with my doctor and kind of helping me not untangle those strings because those strings are still there. It wasn't as tight of a ball and there weren't as many knots. So I appreciated it. And, uh, it probably relieved some of the pressure in my heart, <laughs> just not having that stress. Joey, what, what about your experience? I'm, I'm sitting here listening to Ross and, uh, I just turned 50 and he and I have so many parallels as I listen to him. I am going to try my best not to get emotional because I honestly thought when I was diagnosed with this, that I was slowly losing my mind because up was no longer up and the left was right. And I would go to a doctor and feel like we settled on what was wrong and here's how we're moving forward only to get sent to another doctor who would say, no, that isn't what's going on in your case. You have this. And then that happened three or four times to, to where I really just felt like they were telling me I had whatever they specialized in. Uh-huh. And they weren't really hearing me. And I, I will be honest and say it crushed me mentally. I have always been gregarious. I've always been a strong personality. I like, I like to be in crowds and talk to people and be the center of attention, if you can't tell. But I just kind of like went inside myself and shut completely down because I just felt like the world, something happened and the world changed and my views of everything were way off. And so the mental toll that it took on me, I'm still, digging, I'm still digging out of it and regaining my confidence. It wasn't until I got to Cleveland, the center of excellence for HCM. It wasn't until then that I was finally in a room where I felt like I almost like you could feel me let out that sigh because it was like, finally, after a year and a half of all of these doctor visits and everyone telling me something different, I didn't know if I was supposed to eat salt or if it was okay. I didn't know if I was supposed to drink enough water or to like drink more or less. They didn't know. Nobody knew anything. And, and so it was just this big cluster of misinformation. And I felt like I was chasing my tail. And I found the HCMA webpage because apparently like Ross, I'm a Google doctor. You know, one of the first links that popped up was the HCMA and I asked to join. And as soon as I did and was in that room, it was a quick approval process to get in the room. I felt like you're talking about the Facebook group. Yeah. I felt like I was surrounded by, I didn't feel like I had to go deep into my story because everybody there had sort of this common thread experience of how they ended up there. And it was usually through chaos. And then, you know, 
we yeah. all we all ended up there because it got so chaotic. That was like our Zen place to go, where people would answer questions and share experiences. And it wasn't until then that I started to be able to mentally tell myself that no, I'm okay. It's just you know you've been told a lot of things that are true and a lot of things that aren't true. And now you have to take charge and be an advocate and you have to go in. You have to ask questions. And even when they suggest procedures and stuff, you have to ask questions and ask other people and do things because it is a business at the end of the day. And we have to remember that we only have one life. And so we want to make sure that we really dig into that and pick the doctors that are truly interested in helping us feel better. And so, as you can tell, I could go on and on about this because it's it's just it really it it, it dug in and scarred me mentally, just the process. And that's why I'm part of this group is because it's an educational group and it's an awareness group. And and, you know, my mom. I know when I'm diagnosed with this and it, 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 that's the part that, that really eats me is that I see that she did what I did and never got, never got across that line. And it, you know, that's, that's a big burden for me. Oh my goodness. There's so much to unpack here. <laughs> there's like, we can, we may just stay on the newly diagnosed experience today, but it is, it is a really intense, it's an intense time for us as the patient. Um, we don't have a medical provider here today, but I'm going to speak a little bit on their behalf because it's an, it's an intense time for them too. You walk in the room of a specialist with H, for HCM and they know that there's a map that has to be drawn and it's a very individualized map. It's a map. It's got streets. It's got houses. It's got all the elements of a map, but yours is unique and that your destination, your home, may be a few turns away, and it takes time to get there. I like that analogy, might use that one again. Yeah. So, you know, we gotta get you on the right road, pointing in the right direction, and then there's decision trees that need to be made. What are my hopes? What do I wanna accomplish in life physically? What will this heart and its anatomy allow me to achieve? How do I protect myself against sudden cardiac arrest, atrial fibrillation, advanced heart failure? How do I do that? How do I how do I live a normal life while I'm trying to do all this crap? Like this is a lot. I, I almost wish that immediately upon diagnosis, like everybody could just freeze time for like a week. Yeah. Just like I just need a week to get ahead of this. But time doesn't stop. Time is moving. Everything else is moving around you. And you feel like your foundation just got knocked out from under you and you don't know how to walk anymore. You got to learn how to walk. And you have to stay away from the comfort of denial. It's easy to say, this is nothing. I'm fine. I'm fine. I can, if I'm sitting in a chair, I can do whatever I want. If I walk up a flight of stairs, well, maybe I struggle. So I won't go up the stairs. So you start making the world smaller because I can sit in a chair and I'm fine. Well, that leads to a whole bunch of other trouble, people. Obesity, diabetes, hypertension, orthopedic issues. We, we depression. Depression, anxiety. And you, you develop the anxiety, even though they told us we were crazy and that was our problem, that we didn't have a structural heart disease that could cause, you know, arrhythmias and that The thing. irony, yeah. So <laughs> once you're diagnosed, well, then of course you're an anxious because you've just been diagnosed. So all of that gaslighting that's been going on in your in your medical history mm -hmm. that you're crazy now you really feel crazy because there's so many thoughts whirling in your head and you got to separate them out so in a lot of cases for some people it's just easier to ignore and just try to pretend it's okay until they're feeling bad and then that starts a really bad cycle and you become the cat chasing your tail and and you don't know which way is up so I want all the cats to stop chasing their tail. <laughs> I want them to say, all right, I got a problem. It's not a simple one, probably. Like it could be, you know, your management could be really easy in the, in the beginning. And if things may not progress ever in your life, things may progress in five years, in five weeks, in five decades. It, we don't know when things are going to shift. 
but we have to monitor. What I want the cats to do is stop chasing their tails, jump up on the table, sit down, and talk. Now, if the cats can all talk, we got a whole other video series we can do. <laughs> but we need, to, we need to talk it out. And the HCMA has a really unique program model. You can call in with an intake. You kind of download your information. We can use it for our internal registry if you give us consent. Otherwise, it's just for your navigation call. And your, your data is, is private and it's secure. And we've got all the protections in, in place for that. But you, you get to talk out like, how was I diagnosed? What is my family history? What are my symptoms? And as we're going through the intake process, you're self-identifying where you need those action moments, where you need more education. Maybe you didn't have a test that is necessary to help your doctor assess your overall status because you're in a community hospital and that doctor didn't understand that stress echocardiograms are really important in HCM, or you didn't have a, an event monitor to check for arrhythmias in the past year because your doctor said, well, you had them five years ago, that's okay. No, it's not. So there's these moments that you need to be educated on. And we can help draw that path out. We do an intake and then there's a navigation call and I'm the crazy lady who still does all the navigation calls, but we're trying to make it more efficient through things like our HCM Nest project, which will send out education to you. You can learn on your cell phone, on your computer, in your email, however you wanna learn. We're gonna be there educating you each step of the way to untangle the knots, to make you stop chasing your tail, whatever analogy you're comfortable with, to draw your map to your destination therapy. And your destination therapy may be a very simple, inexpensive prescription drug. It could be an implantable cardioverter defibrillator with or without pacing features. It could be an open heart procedure called myectomy. It could be a catheter-based procedure called alcohol septal ablation. It could be a radiofrequency ablation for an arrhythmia. It could be the need for genetic testing in your family. It could be anticoagulation therapy or a bunch of other things that I didn't get to mention. You're not gonna be everything I just mentioned. Right. But when you look at the websites and you're like, okay, I'm everything and this is gonna be terrible because I have to do all these things. You're probably gonna have to do one. And then maybe in a few years, you might have to do something else. But we want you to be calm in your decision-making. We want you to understand the value of high volume care. There's a reason we support it. Comes down to two words, patient safety. You are safest in high volume programs. You are safest with experts who understand all that crap that I just talked about. That's where you're safest. And why is the HCMA the HCMA? Because we weren't safe in 1995. My sister didn't die from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. She died from mismanaged hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And yeah, maybe I made it a mission to make sure when somebody's looking for information, we have pathways available to help educate them so that we don't make mistakes in the future. It's, it's funny, uh, as you're talking, I, you know, you just always grow up and assume you go to the doctor and they're going to tell you what's wrong with you. You know, it's, you, you, it's like this uh, transactional thing in your head where you go, they tell you, here's what you do, and you do it. And I found with this disease there, for the longest time, I could not, if somebody would be like, what's wrong, what's wrong with you? And I, I really couldn't even explain it because it, there were so many different moving parts of it. And the other thing that threw me off, and this is a, not a burn on local uh, community hospitals, but it, it was shocking to me at how little experience and how few patients the cardiologists, even in cities the size of Indianapolis, have of patients with HCM. I, I've been a reporter my whole life. Why didn't I go in the room and say, my first question, how many patients have you treated with HCM? Because the answer would not have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I think that was part of the gaslighting experience too that led to my mental erosion was just the doctor didn't just come out and say, hey, this is not something I specialize in. We need to get you to this person. You know, it was just kind of a chugging along thing. So that awareness that you're talking about, that acceptance in the group, that education, the when I did my intake call, sorry about my dogs, when I did my intake call, 
it was like it was starting to unravel those threads in my head and it was like oh oh you know it was like i started to make a list of all these things and it's like okay well i can almost self-diagnose now that you're asking about my grandparents and my mom and dad and my aunts and uncles so I, I just want to give everybody a note from Dr. Marin. He he had an issue in the hospital and he just sent me a text message like, I'm so, so sorry I wasn't there today. I'm like, you're forgiven, but you got to redo it some other time. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get it back out here to talk with you. I think this is a really important conversation, though, and I'm, I'm kind of glad it landed this way today because I, I think as my diagnosis was many, 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 many years ago, and I, I hate saying I'm the oldest one on this call, but but I am. By a few not by much, years. not by much. Yeah, well, I just had my Sammy Hagar birthday. Thank you for my, the flowers from the team. <laughs> um, and uh, my Sammy Hagar can't drive 55. That's kind of my, my birthday mantra <laughs> this year. And A, post-transplant, birthdays are different. You appreciate them a little bit more. It's a little bit different. Oh, um, but my diagnosis occurred in a vacuum called 1980. Okay. Um, so let's all just go back to 1980 for just a moment, just a moment. It would be two years before I got my first Walkman. Okay. I still had an eight track stereo system with a turntable in my bedroom with Lloyd speakers. I was cool. Okay. I was very cool. From Montgomery um, Wards, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> yes, Montgomery Ward, Green Stamp. I may, may actually have been purchased there in Dover. So, okay. You're, we've got the picture. I'm 12 years old. I'm diagnosed, sent to an adult cardiologist in private practice who did a great job at the diagnosis. He, he nailed it after the murmur was detected in a school physical. And I was told that I could die suddenly and unexpectedly at any moment and CPR wouldn't save me. Wow. That was my- That's opinion. just wow. devastating to hear. Like, how do you go on from that? Um, you, you turn into a, a bit of a handful of a teenager for a few years. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, I'm kind I, yeah, I'm, kind of lucky that I'm still here because I didn't think I was going to live long. So, you know, I didn't do all the things that I was supposed to do. And I did some things I wasn't supposed to do. And I was in complete denial, as were other members of my family, including my mother. So we're not just dealing with the psyche of the individual patient going through the newly diagnosed experience. It's our, it's my parents at that point friend community, the, the social, you know, a 12-year-old, what is more important to a 12-year-old than our social circle? And I didn't want to be treated differently. And I was afraid to talk about it because I thought I'd freak people out. You know, these are all the things. Yeah, you're the girl with a bad heart, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if you've ever heard this or not. Um, thank you, <clears throat> mean girls, for bringing this to everybody's attention. But teenage girls are nasty little brats in many cases. At least they were in the early 80s. There was some viciousness going on. They saw weakness. They attacked. Thank God the internet didn't exist. Oh, right. my God. I don't know how these kids do it today. God bless you all. Um, yeah, so it was, it was bad enough if somebody knew your weakness back then, and they could exploit it or exclude you or other you. And it was, it was tough as a kid. I think we've advanced in our understanding of disease and how different people deal with chronic illness. And we've normalized this to a certain degree, but there's still that, you know, you're different. I know your weakness. I'm going to exploit it. And that's part of living with a, an uncommon condition that people don't truly understand very well. They think they know. So I have a thousand stories. Now I have like 20,000 stories of, of the newly diagnosed experience. And they have a number of common threads, shock, disbelief, confusion, a lot of anxiety, and an aha moment. And we each come to our aha moment. Like, all right, it's not gonna be as it was, but it doesn't have to be terrible. And there's a lot in the toolbox to choose from now. 1980, that toolbox was empty. It had a couple of pills in it and uh, that was it. Even transplant wasn't being done regularly then because everybody was rejecting and dying at that point. 
holy crap, 2023. I'm going to pivot the newly diagnosed talk to a clinical trial talk. And yeah, a lot of change. <laughs> there's been so much change. An explosion of change, yeah. Even I am like, holy crap, slow the, <laughs> slow the train down. Slow the roll. Things are going really fast. We need to be smart and safe about this. Safe. Patient safety. So here we are in 2023. We are currently helping in a recruitment effort with Tenaya Therapeutics for a genetic therapy for those with myosin binding protein C who may be able to have access to this clinical trial, which will repair their DNA and remove the burden of myosin binding protein C in the genetics. Oh my God, if this works, if this works, it's a clinical trial. It's very, very early. We haven't even dosed the first patient yet, but the promise of that therapeutic option is awesome. There are other therapeutic options that are now available that are game-changing, and we're, we're learning how to use these new tools, myosin inhibitors. We're using them in obstructed. We're going to start looking at them in the non-obstructed population. We're recruiting for some trials there. Stay tuned for news from us on non-obstructed HCM myosin inhibitor clinical trial participation. Wow, okay, so let's, if we can't repair the myosin at, at its very core, we're gonna go into with the DNA okay, yeah. therapy through genetic therapy, we can alter how the myosin heads are functioning with myosin inhibitors. And if you're watching this and I'm like digging in my hand on the side, <laughs> I'm like, myosin heads engage. We want them to relax. We want the myosin head to yeah. engage and relax and engage and relax. And we're hyper engaged. We can now target that. We've been blanketing the HCM heart with therapies like beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, antiarrhythmics. I, I won't put anticoagulants in that category because that has a different kind of therapeutic path. But most of the meds we've been using, we've stolen from other diseases, aren't really made for us, but it was all we had. And we have a lot of side effects from them. And sometimes the side effects are worse than the disease itself. So people don't take the meds and they don't get any of the benefits. They don't want any of the side effects. And that's cool. And I get patient choice and you want to live your life the way you want to live your life. But now myosin inhibitors work on a different property and we're isolating what that property is to maybe normalize the heart as much as possible without correcting the DNA and maybe let that heart relax better, feel better. Remember, we've got a great squeeze. We got a sucky relax. Yeah. So how do you get that heart to open up? And, you know, we, we talk one minute about families and stress and psychological, but this is really a matter of the human anatomy and what the chamber of the heart looks like. And we all look a little bit different. And we just want to help that heart open and close as efficiently and effectively as possible. And if it can do that, the rest of the stuff gets a lot easier. Yeah, we'd have to manage it. But if we felt decent, if we could walk up a flight of stairs, if we could not overanalyze, okay, how much energy am I going to have today? Right. Uh, can I go to the store today or is that going to just wipe me out? Yeah. Uh, I need food for the house, but maybe I'll just go through drive through and you start making these little changes that are not healthy, but they help you get through a day and then they become a habit. And then we develop other health problems. So we need to rest our body. We need to rest our mind. We need to live a healthy life and do the things we want to do. You know what? I've been doing this work for 28 almost years, and I've talked to a lot of people. Very few people will make the exact same decision for the exact same reason, even when faced with the exact same, well, almost exact same clinical situation. You don't have to do what everybody else is doing. You have to do what's right for you. And you have so many options right now. It's it's amazing. Nice inhibitor trials. We have genetic therapy trials. We have the ability to consent into the HCMA patient registry, which is going to be organized as a trial. Stay tuned for more information on that. There's just so much going on right now. There is. Can, I just want to jump in here right now because I feel like it's a good opportunity to say is there is this, this explosion of things happening, which is awesome. The thing I find so frustrating is that you can go and get tested and find out 
if you have certain things now with DNA testing and all of the other things, but the biggest struggle I have, I've got, I don't mean to single them out, but I've got a little great nephew who is five years old and I try and come up with a way to preach the importance without sounding preachy to my family of get tested like all the science is happening and there are all these things that are going to be possible but not if you don't know you're going to be like i was growing up 40 years ago and not knowing what was going on or at least you know if you could have had answers and been ahead of that in 1980 the fact that we can get tested and know if we've got a certain tendency or a gene or or something wrong with us i just i need help on getting people it's like if we can get them in the door that they can at least listen to hear what's out there and so how do you do that um repetitiveness is important as a starting point but as the ceo and founder of the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy association i would like to take this opportunity to make a public address and it is this, I understand why 20 years ago, family members maybe didn't want to know if they weren't feeling anything, even if they were at risk of sudden death, you know, our, our treatment options were so limited 20 years ago. They were, they were good for what we had and we were using everything that we had and thanks to everybody that got us to that point. But there were still a lot of complications in the therapies and the skills of the teams, et cetera. We've spent a lot of time developing competency in centers of excellence. We have spent a lot of time finessing how to provide the highest level of treatment with the lowest level of side effects and the highest safety profiles. We have become a much more organized community of researchers, industry representatives, patient advocates, all voices marching forward in the same direction. So if you've been diagnosed with HCM today and you need to have the conversation with your family, the sit down, it's uncomfortable because we as individual people are not typically used to being vulnerable with our health information with families because we know families are complicated. <laughs> like we're not always on the same page. We're all individual people with our own choices. But to say, hey, family member, this is a disease that runs in family. I am your family. It is in me. It may be in you. We can do something about it. If you are at risk, we can just monitor it and take care of it that way. We can take intervention if it's appropriate and you can be safe and you can immediately build that security back in they will have their newly diagnosed moment as well and you as a family member will help them through that newly diagnosed challenge and guide them to resources and be a resource for them or maybe the relationship is complicated and maybe you don't talk so much and maybe you don't talk personal shit with your siblings okay i get it i've seen every family dynamic i think yeah. there is out there then you send them to us and say you don't have to listen to me Here's the HCMA. If you become a member, you get the journal. In the journal, there's a couple pages that you can take pictures of and text to your family members. So it's not coming from Joey. Hey, I've been diagnosed. Here's the organization that represents the disease state. And here's what you can do about it. Here's so you can get educated. And if they don't bite the first time, you'll ask them again in a couple of months. Hey, did you ever follow up on that? You, you know, can only do so much good advice it, it, because it's consumed my life for almost two years and that's what they see and then when i try to talk about it with them i think in their head they think gosh that's all he ever you know what i mean i like i'm obsessed with it and i am <laughs> side note i am but i you know i want to try to come across as trying to educate and help them but i can see why they think that is the only thing in his head. So the, the, the sending him to the website, that, that's all good stuff. I like that. Genetics, you know, it's really interesting. When I, um, when I was first tested, I came up as a variant of unknown significant. And, you know, that was what it was. So I, I was the first in my family where I thought. And, uh, you know, six years later, I rescreened. And lo and behold, the MYH7 
gene, there had just been enough results with my mutation that I was no longer a variant of unknown significance. And Joey, to your point, that led me to conversations with my parents because now I had a now I had the marker and I wanted to find out where it came from. So my parents both took the tests and because Invitae gives you free family screening if you within X number of days if you test positive, and we were able to find it in my mom. And so just yeah, wow. just in the last six months, she's having that aha moment now too that oh you know, my mom or my grandmother, or, you know, she had a stroke and, oh, it was probably, you know, it was HCM. And, you know, you start looking back at your family and, and, uh, and making those, making those calls and, and having those talks that you're not just, it's not just islanded. It's not just you necessarily. And just going back quickly though, because I think it's important to say the one thing when you're newly diagnosed and your doctor's not going to say it, but I wish I could just give everybody a hug and say, good days and bad days are real. <laughs> you know, it's not clinical, but you're not crazy, right? right? Good days and bad days are real. And that is your normal. And, it, it, you know, here, you get a free T-shirt. Good days and bad days are real. Talk to your friends, you know, <laughs> you know, especially after you because you have that moment where you're processing your body and your symptoms and everything like that. And you do it again when you get your genetic results. You know, it's like, oh, this is a whole new level of real. It's not physical real. It's scientific proof real that this is a genetic condition and, and whatnot. So you go through a whole different litany of feelings with that. And then you add, like to Lisa's point, then you add in family dynamic and it's just like, <laughs> yeah. Denny, I'm going to read this in for those who are watching or listening on podcasts. Uh, says, I have had this my entire life with symptoms from time to time as a young girl. I'm 61 now, just went under genetic testing and was identified with a gene causing this. My 83-year-old father had the gene and my 63-year-old sister both have no symptoms. What advice can you give them? I'm going to say something that might sound a little crazy to some people. We don't really know that they have no symptoms. And the reason we don't know, even though they're saying it, is they don't know what normal really is. They just know the existence in their body and they may have accepted certain things that they feel as normal. I'm glad they're not seeing themselves as symptomatic, but when you start probing questions in somebody who not only, you know, we want to make sure that they're gene carriers, but you want to make sure there's phenocopy there too, meaning that their heart is actually thickened. And if their heart is actually thickened and, and you see the signs of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and then you start asking questions about symptoms, well, do you feel this or that when you stand, walk, after a meal, before a meal, up a flight of stairs, et cetera? And you start going into, well, what does that feel like to you? And they start explaining, well, of course I get a little breathless if I climb a flight of stairs after I had lunch. Okay, that's not normal necessarily. <laughs> And well, of course, I feel my heart beat, you know, when I lay down, that's not normal. Normal hearts don't do that. Your heart does and it's normal for you. So you may not see it as a symptom. And, and of course, it's normal to almost pass out after you mow the yard and walk up the driveway. Or tie your shoes. <laughs> yeah, the tying the shoes thing is, is a big one. So um, my advice to the family is get an evaluation by a cardiologist who really understands hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It doesn't have to be a center of excellence, but you want to make sure that when you're going to that doctor, you're saying my fill-in-the-blank relative has a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and I have just been found to be gene-positive for that causative gene, I need a complete comprehensive workup. You're gonna need an echocardiogram. And if you go to a community doctor and you go in their office and you get an echocardiogram, it is not the same quality. You do not get the same number of images. You don't use a, a protocol specific for HCM. You're getting a general echo. You may or may not find it there because the walls of the outside of the heart, well, as you're imaging in your left posterior or left, left wall of the heart doesn't get imaged as well because you're shooting through it. 
So you want a protocol that's really going to use the techniques that are needed to image all aspects of the left ventricle, not just the basal septum. If you're just shooting into that basal septum, you're giving people a false sense of security because a lot of them will have hypertrophy elsewhere, including the apex. We're seeing a lot of people diagnosed now with apical HCM and they're like, we're rare, we're unusual. No, sweethearts, you're not. <laughs> you're not special. You're just a different anatomy. You don't have to have thickness in one particular spot to be HCM. But the place we saw first was in the basal septum. And that's what most people are conditioned to look for outside of centers of excellence. So you have to look down the whole septal wall and down to the apex, the free wall. You need the wall measurements of the entire ventricle, not just a piece of it. So you want to get a good, good workup for your family members. And I wonder on that, like, you know, I mentioned the mowing the yard or whatever. It's like, I wish I could have had my echogram or my cardiac MRI as I'm mowing my yard <laughs> or as I'm coming up because, you know, my body is doing something different than lying in a tube or lying on my side. And it's sometimes hard to replicate the scenarios where you experience the symptoms. And I guess in, in some of those cases, that's where you get the heart monitor and wear it a few weeks. and Stress echocardiogram, Ross, yeah. exactly. So you can see what's happening when you're exercising and you're getting your heart rate up, not whether your coronaries are safe, which is a stress test, we are looking at the structure of your heart. So you do a stress echo, you get the heart rate up as high as you can, you jump on the echo table, put your arm up, get the technician in there real fast. It's, it's a little bit of a frantic moment, but boom, you get that transducer in the right spot and you can get some great images. I'm going to conclude here with a couple of messages. I wanna give a great big thank you to Ross and Joey for not only stepping in with literally no prep time, <laughs> they know these problems so We've well. We've lived it, yeah. It's we can talk about it and you know ross came on oh my goodness ross how long have you been here now three years uh, getting there yeah close to three years okay two and a half years and joey we've just met recently and you've taken on uh, on a project for us of, of helping with the podcast so you know you you get you get the mission you understand it from a personal and a an organizational standpoint and I do try when possible to bring people from the community to work for the community because we understand things at a deeper level than others. We train our, our fellow staff members who don't have HCM, what it's like to be us. And it, it's really, it's been a great way of building out the organization with the mission truly at the heart of the matter. And the annual meeting is open and I am really excited to tell you that the sponsorship of the annual meeting has been so good, we cut the price. So we brought the prices down for two weeks only. Schedule now, please get involved. I wanna give a shout out to all of our volunteers for the year. We're gonna be calculating your annual volunteer hours at the end of August. And based on your volunteer hours, you are going to be getting some benefits including at the highest level, a 75% discount to the annual meeting. So it's gonna be um, something you're gonna wanna check your hours on, make sure your hours are up to date with Julie. And um, we have other prizes that we're gonna be giving away. So thank you for all your volunteer efforts. We've got lots and lots of hours of volunteer time this year. So thank you for all of that. We are holding a pediatric webinar. So if you have young ones with HCM or you have young ones at risk for HCM, you're going to want to join us. We've got four amazing physicians and we're going to talk about genetic therapies. We're going to talk about myosin inhibitors and clinical trials in kids. We're going to talk about transitioning care from childhood to adult. We've got a jam packed agenda. So I would encourage you to take a look at the agenda, organize your questions, listen intently. If your question isn't answered, post it in the Q&A and we will address your individual questions. And I am sorry I'm going to do this, but I I, I, I need to do something. It's not a happy thing. Oh, gosh. Um, so we talked a lot about the newly diagnosed. We talked about the, the, the stress of, of all of the what ifs that could happen. We're facing a challenging time for one of our long-term long -term clients. Uh, a woman I've known since I think 1997. My records from back then are a little crappy, so 1997, 1998. This lovely woman and her sister, I met her sister first, her sister called me.
seeking care and information for her sister. She's literally endured everything in the toolbox. Early on, she had a, two early alcohol septoblasions that didn't work for her. She went on to surgery. She had other therapies, devices, radiofrequency ablations, myectomy, alcoholation, CRT devices, and ultimately a heart transplant a year and a half ago. Transplant is such a blessing, but with a lot of risks. And unfortunately, her organ has been rejecting and through their best efforts, her body is fully shutting down and rejecting the organ. And not every story has a happy ending that we live a long life and die blowing out candles on her 90th birthday. And um, this young woman is um, in hospice care right now. And we send our love to her family. Definitely. And to her. And to her. And I have, have one picture because I got to meet her last year in Denver. And um, she's a really remarkable warrior who did not get handed an easy heart to deal with. And her body took some beatings for it. So she's a product of the best we had from the 90s forward. We're in a better state now. There are better options. We understand more. And Heather is one of the reasons we understand more because she tried things. And I, I know that she was involved with a few different clinical trials over her life to try to help the cause. And she has shared her story with others. Uh, she is on our Share Your Story uh, system. And you can read about her there. There's not going to be updates on this last phase yet. But I want to send just healing energy for this last transition. Yeah. And, and thank you for the thank you for the things she did do. And stories like that make us want to dig deeper and fight harder. And 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 she fought for us when she could to help open doors. And and I hope that we can do that in her name. Big heart, big life. Yeah. Big heart, big life. I do want to shout out to Edgewise because I dropped them off of the last one because I was <laughs> on them. So thank you to Edgewise um, and all of our new sponsors that are coming on. You're going to start hearing some other new names, which means we're really busy sending our love to Heather and her family. Yes. And I thank Ross and Joey for joining us today and sharing a really interesting conversation. So thank you all. And thank you all for listening and uh, sign up for the webinar and sign up for the meeting. Come on out and visit us. We need some hugs. I need some hugs. Come that hug would us. be great. I could use one now. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you all. Take care.